0: Monday, everyone. Welcome to the Colby Daniels podcast presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Check out their line of natural medicine products. You can visit their website, abotanicalcompany.com, or give them a call 405-458-9699. Ask them questions and let them educate you about what they have available and how it can benefit your daily life. That's what they're all about, helping people live a better life at Artisan Botanicals. Also, we are saving you money this holiday season when you check out online abotanicalcompany.com. Use the code Colby Show, that's C O L B Y S H O W, Colby Show, as your discount code at checkout. You save 15% off your online order. So, again, check out the website, abotanicalcompany.com. Order online. Use the code Colby Show for 15% off your order. I'm really excited that we're able to do this. And again, great people uh, at, at Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Where do we begin on this Monday? What a crazy football weekend it was! Uh, we've obviously got to talk about the game in Arlington, the Big Twelve Championship, uh, the College Football Playoff, the bowl matchups. Will the bowl matchups happen? Uh, breaking down what the committee did as far as the four spot, uh, Oklahoma in the six spot, A and M in the five spot, and, and just you know that that whole shakeup, I think, is interesting. So we'll talk about all of that, and and obviously, you know, it was a big NFL weekend as well. Baker Mayfield shines on Sunday Night Football. The Browns uh, bounce back from that loss. That heartbreaking loss a week ago and and uh, Cleveland, wow, who would have thought ten win season for the Cleveland Browns? Uh, and then you had the battle of uh, former OU quarterbacks in the Arizona Philly game. So Kyler Murray getting back on the winning side of things. And again, I think it's early. I, I don't. I, I've said this a, a few times over the last year. I don't necessarily think Jalen Hurts has a really high ceiling in the NFL. He's already outperformed, I think, what I thought he was capable of from a, a throwing the football standpoint. But again, I think we see this with all quarterbacks in the NFL. As they play and teams adjust to them, they're going to be forced into doing some things that maybe they aren't necessarily great at. So uh, I, again, I, I think if you are a Philly fan, you have to love what you've seen from Jalen Hurts to this point. But it'll be interesting to see how he continues to develop uh, as defenses. Get more film on him and and figure out game plans against him. But that was a lot of fun to watch yesterday, Jalen Hurts and Kyler Murray. All right, let's let's just start with the college football playoff today. So I will rewind a Saturday morning and kind of evaluating what we were looking forward to as far as the playoff and who had an opportunity to to maybe end up in that that four spot or or look if things got really crazy how it would shake out. But ultimately, I, I think the expectation was that. The teams that won on Saturday were the teams that were going to win, and I don't think there was necessarily the expectation that Clemson was going to win as dominantly as they did, but a Clemson win, I, I think, was going to give us still the same four that we got, and that was the expectation, that Clemson would beat Notre Dame. They would even that that season series at one apiece. Ohio State would beat Northwestern as heavy favorites despite not having, uh, what was the number, like 23 players, I think. Three starters and, and obviously a bunch of depth, but... uh I, nobody anticipated that Northwestern was going to upset Ohio State and then Alabama obviously beating Florida. So the expectation going into Saturday was that Clemson would beat Notre Dame. The other games would stay chalk, and we would have Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Notre Dame in the final. Obviously, with the way that Clemson beat Notre Dame, it it really created an opening, I think, for other teams to kind of make their case. The problem is, I think, when you look at who the other teams are and what they might have over that Notre Dame team, that's where it becomes a, a tricky situation. I, I totally get the conversation over seeing Notre Dame get dominated and then a day later saying they're best, they're one of the best four teams. I, I totally understand that, uh, and and you you have a valid point. The problem is when you start comparing the overall resume, and you start looking at all of the metrics that the committee has shown us over the last seven years that they value, Notre Dame beats A&M across the board. So if you thought that A&M should get the opportunity over Notre Dame, I think really the only legitimate case you could make for A&M over Notre Dame is the timing of the loss, right? Like we all understand that what happens at the end of the season weighs a little more heavily than what happens early in the season. Uh, because obviously the team that's playing Alabama in a couple weeks is is not even close to the same team that plays in week two or week three. I mean, we get that every single year. Uh, but, but if you're A&M, that was really, I think, the big argument was both teams got blown out in their one loss. A&M's happened early in the season. They were able to bounce back from it. Notre Dame just happened to get beaten the way they did in a conference championship game. But like every other metric favored Notre Dame, and so I don't think that came into play. If all things had been really close – Maybe the committee leans toward A&M in, in that aspect. But, you know, I don't think it was that close when you consider uh, just the way that Notre Dame played from week one all the way to the conference championship game. Uh, the fact that their wins are better, their overall resume is better, their, the, the quality of their opponents were better. Like, it's, it's really not that close of a race when you start evaluating all the metrics. And look, it, it, I think for A&M... Another problem is, down the stretch of the season, I know they had a bunch of SEC wins. I know they finished the season on a win streak. But, it' like, I watched them down the stretch, and I, I do think they're a good team. I like their team. Their biggest is- issue for me is the quarterback play. When you look at, you know, even going to yesterday and what actually happened, the top six teams in the country, like, Kellen Mond, to me, is the the last quarterback if you're having a draft of those guys. I, I would take Spencer Rattler ahead of Kellen Mond. And, and certainly... Trevor Lawrence and Matt Jones and Ian book and Justin Fields ahead of Kellen Mond. I think that's really the, the their biggest issue at the moment is just uh, that guy at the most important position on the football field. But I think especially their last three games, uh, they didn't look really impressive. And I think that hurt them, especially on Saturday it, watching that, that Tennessee game, Tennessee's a what three and seven football team when it's all said and done. And you know, A and M won comfortably, but it wasn't a win where you just you walked away from from A win thinking that's one of the best four teams in college football or that's a really impressive college football team. You walked away from it saying, "Well, they're clearly better than Tennessee, but you know, how good are they?" I I don't know. It, it just there was never a wow factor. I think down the stretch with Texas A and M to to give them the benefit of the doubt from an eye test standpoint. So when you start breaking down all the other metrics. Like, look at their SEC record. And look, I, I would say this. I do think that being in the SEC benefited them, despite the SEC not being that good this year. It's kind of funny that most years, like for the last 10 years, I, I feel like I'm always defending the SEC, especially in Big 12 country, because we we like in Big 12 country to say, well, the SEC is not as, as good as everybody thinks they are. And, you know, there are, there are certainly situations where we've seen SEC teams lose uh, in, in bowl games and Blah, blah, blah. You get my point. Uh, I do think over the last 10 years, probably every single year, the SEC has been the best conference in college football. I don't, however, think they're just unbeatable every single year like like maybe the the majority of people across the country do. All that said, if you were really watching SEC football this year, they're getting credit for the name SEC, but I don't think the football this year was that good. And when you look at the, the traditional powers inside the SEC – I don't think that most of those those teams were as good as they normally are. Certainly, Auburn was nowhere close to as good as they've been at times over the last five to ten years. Certainly, LSU was not even close to being as good as they were a year ago. Alabama is the best team in that conference by miles, and, and that showed with how they basically dominated everybody by three and four touchdowns, if not more, every single week. Uh, on, in the other division, Georgia... I I think came into the season with high expectations. And as we were watching them, uh, they they're not nearly as good as we thought they were going to be coming into the year. I I will give them a lot of credit. I think when they added JT Daniels at quarterback, they got considerably better than they were before. They were so offensively limited early in the year with uh, the original guy whose name is escaping me right now, but JT Daniels makes them way better. Uh, But still, I think they were, they were pretty disappointing uh, based on, on who they had coming back on both sides of the football and and also understanding like there's a bunch of NFL players on that roster, without a doubt. Like I I I still like a lot of the, the players on George's roster. It just never really worked out for them this season. So uh you know, overall, I, I just don't think the conference was that good. And when you look at the teams AM beat within the SEC, like if you really look at it and, and don't just say, Well, they beat seven SEC teams, eh, yeah. I'm or eight SEC teams, sorry. They did. They did. And and again, I think the SEC is living on reputation a little bit in 2020 versus reality. A&M beat Vanderbilt, who was 0-9. And I'll give them credit for the Florida win. The Florida win was a good win. Florida finishes the season 8-3, and right? They uh, they lose their third game of the year uh, in the in the conference championship game. And they also finished the year having lost their final two games against LSU and Alabama. Uh, but Vanderbilt 0-9, Florida 8-3, and Mississippi State was two and seven. Arkansas was three and seven. South Carolina was two and eight. LSU was four and five. Auburn was six and four. And then Tennessee was three and seven. So, I mean, you're talking about a bunch of teams that had losing records, and not just, you know, close to 500 losing records. I mean, you're talking two win teams, three win teams. Mississippi State two and seven. South Carolina two and eight. Tennessee three and seven, Arkansas three and seven, Vandy oh and nine. You know, you can only play who's on your schedule, and, and I totally get that. But when you have a tight race for one of these spots, these are the metrics that come into play. And and AM was just on the wrong side of that situation. So, you know, to to bring up a couple other interesting things that the committee values, and and let me let me just go off on this for just a second. We're in year seven now of this college football playoff committee, and it's amusing to me every year that we go through this thing and people act like they have no idea how the committee is doing this, what the committee values and that they kind of change the argument every single week of every single year. And while I think that's that's true on the level of a weekly ranking and and it's, you know, again, a 10-minute press conference on ESPN with Reese Davis, doesn't really give you, I think, the full scope of, of what they're evaluating. But when you, when you start to pay attention to the metrics that they reference at the end of every year when all the dust settles and, and how they evaluate those things, like there are a bunch of people that, that every single year get, real, get, get it exactly right or really close in terms of predicting what's going to happen with the committee. So I, there's also, I think, this idea of wanting the committee to be a certain way and being upset when the committee doesn't operate that way versus just understanding how the committee operates, right? Like there are a bunch of people that want Cincinnati to have an opportunity. The reality is Cincinnati just doesn't have an opportunity. Like you can be mad about it. Sure. I'm not, I'm not saying like, don't dislike the system. You can certainly dislike the system, but when you're trying to figure out what the committee is going to do, you have to take what you believe is right out of the equation and you have to to look at it from their perspective and what they value. And Cincinnati was never going to get that opportunity for the fourth spot, much less the fifth spot or the sixth spot. Zero part of me thought that Cincinnati was going to be ranked ahead of Oklahoma. And I got into Twitter arguments over it. Like it it just wasn't going to happen. Oklahoma's resume based on the way that the committee views this thing and, and the things that the committee values, Oklahoma's resume was head and shoulders above Cincinnati. Now, look, I also think, Based on the same criteria that got Notre Dame in over A and I, I that same criteria says Oklahoma over A and M, and this is where I think part of this might be some OU fatigue from having lost the last three semifinals. Part of this is probably giving A and M credit for being in the SEC, but if you just compare the two teams, and, and you know they they like to they like to throw this out how they put teams in clusters. And once a team is in a cluster, that's how they start comparing them head to head. So like, for example, there could be a situation where say the fifth team in the country, if you compare them side by side to the 10th team in the country, maybe the 10th team, you can make a better argument for over the fifth team, if that makes sense. But when they're not compared in the same cluster, that never gets brought up and they're not compared side by side. So there's a way I, I think to kind of avoid comparing these teams head to head and how like one argument can apply to a certain matchup but doesn't apply to another matchup because the way they do it is they rank these teams in clusters. And I think clearly this year it was Alabama, probably in its own cluster, but if you want to make the case that the the top cluster for them was Alabama and Clemson, Alabama, you know, head-to-head wins that battle. The next cluster is probably, in my opinion, Ohio State by themselves. I, I don't think there was anybody that they viewed as equal to Ohio State. And then the next cluster, I think, was was Notre Dame and Texas A&M. Uh, and, and look, I think if Oklahoma had been included in that group, o- Oklahoma probably gets the spot ahead of A&M, but I don't think Oklahoma was in the same cluster. Uh, and that's the reason why I think the metrics that give us Notre Dame over A&M would have given us Oklahoma over A&M, but it, it wasn't considered because I don't think they were elevated quite that high in terms of evaluating the head-to-heads. But I do think Oklahoma was put in the cluster with you know Cincinnati and, and everybody that, that obviously was below five. And there's no question that, again, the things the committee values, Oklahoma just wins head and shoulders. If Oklahoma doesn't lose to Kansas State, if you take that off the board, and Oklahoma had won that game, Oklahoma would be the fourth team right now, or honestly, you can make the argument. Oklahoma is the third team right now. Oklahoma might get in over Ohio state. Honestly, if the, if the Kansas state loss hadn't happened, but it did. And that's something that is a a black mark on their resume. I will say this. I I think the committee also for the people that say that should keep them out of the six spot. Um, I, I, I get when it's all said and done and you look at the dust settling and, and what team Kansas state was, uh, that they weren't a good football team. And they they obviously really spiraled downhill as the season uh, came to a conclusion. But the committee also uh, evaluates these losses and evaluates the conditions of these losses. And Kansas State certainly wasn't the same team that faced Oklahoma as they were at the end of the season. I mean, Skylar Thompson gets hurt and Kansas State goes into, into free-fall mode. So that's, I'm just telling you, that, that's not the end-all be-all and that's not something that, maybe makes the difference in terms of getting one ranking spot or another, but I think it's something that the committee does understand and does value and takes into account when you evaluate just how bad that Kansas state loss is. Secondly, they, they redeem themselves against Iowa state. They avenge one of the two losses, and it's also for a conference championship, which we understand is, is beneficial when you start adding all of the different elements up. It's, it's not just like a conference championship on its own is going to completely elevate you, but it's just one more argument to make for a team to to potentially jump as high as Oklahoma did. The other thing is, the committee obviously valued Ohio or Iowa State. Like, there's this idea that Iowa State was ahead of some of these teams and one spot below Texas A and M, and that if Oklahoma beat them, Iowa State was going to free fall. And like, I think there's also this perception that. this is based on the way the old old AP was right like the old AP would have 10 teams and if like the number six team in the country lost but everybody else won like wherever the six team went say they say they dropped to 10 then everybody below them just moves up a single spot like it just kind of like everybody's in this certain order at the beginning of the season and you just kind of like take your one step forward when one team loses and that's that's not the way the college football playoff operates. It's, it's not even close to the way the playoff operates. A team can jump five or six spots in one week because your resume overall can change drastically in one week. So uh, this idea that if you're behind a team in a certain week and both teams win, that you remain behind that team is crazy. That's That's just, it's not realistic, and it's not the way they do things. So Iowa State being ranked ahead of Cincinnati to start this weekend – Told me that whoever won the Big Twelve Championship game was going to remain ahead of Cincinnati, right? Like because they clearly valued both two lost teams from the Big Twelve, who were six and ten this weekend. And you add the conference championship element, you you obviously understand that both teams, from a strength of schedule standpoint, have a considerable advantage on a Cincinnati team. Like there, there was just there was never a chance that Cincinnati was going to be ranked ahead of, of a Big Twelve champion. Uh, You know, again, uh, when you look at all the metrics for Oklahoma and and what really propelled them all the way up to the sixth spot, and in my mind, potentially could have given them the fifth spot. um, You know, Oklahoma wins wins the argument even again over over Notre Dame in some of these instances, and certainly over Texas A and M. So another element that the committee values is quality wins and top twenty five wins. So Texas A and M had two quality wins this season and one top twenty five win. Notre Dame had four quality wins, twice as many as AM, and 2 top 25 wins, again, twice as many as Texas a and Oklahoma had four quality wins, same as Notre Dame, twice as many as Texas A&M, and and 3 top 25 wins, more than both Texas a and and Notre Dame. Again, on its own, that's not enough to, to just propel you to the top, but it's, it's an argument that gives you a checkmark, and at the end of the day, that's, that's what the whole point of this is to understand the criteria that the committee values. And when you start giving check marks, who ends up with the most at the end of the day, who has the best argument. So that's just one area. You know, I think we get so caught up in sometimes seeing that the committee sees a two team race. That's basically equal across the board. And there's one defining element that propels one team over the other. And and we want to like, maybe think that that one element has more weight than it does in other comparisons, but that was the tiebreaker in a in a tie situation, if, if that makes sense. If if you are better in that one category than somebody else, but they're better than you in eight other categories, then it doesn't come into play. So, I, again, I think it's just about understanding how the committee does this. You know, I talked about uh, the strength of schedule for Texas A&M and just what a bad spot they were in from that perspective. Uh, when you look at the strength of schedule formula, the committee values that, that involves your opponent winning percentage – Oklahoma was 77, Notre Dame was 97, and Texas A&M was 113. Again, this is a, a situation where A&M I think gets a lot of credit for being in the SEC and winning a bunch of SEC games, but when you break those games down and who they were against, two two teams with a winning record overall. So A&M lost that battle. They lost the quality win and top 25 win. Uh, you know, we we've heard about game control. And how the committee values that. Um, Notre Dame and Oklahoma both with a big edge over AM in that metric. In fact, Oklahoma almost double AM in the game control metric, which again is just another check mark for Oklahoma. And this is why I don't think maybe they were considered in the same cluster as Notre Dame and Texas AM. Because I, I think they're, you know, again, based on just the criteria that they use, um, it's it's pretty one-sided if you're having that comparison. Um what was the other one that I was going to bring up real quick? Let's see. Oh, here we go. The final offensive and defensive efficiency rankings for these three teams that we're talking about at the moment with Notre Dame, AM, and Oklahoma. So for Notre Dame, final offensive efficiency ranking was 10. For AM, 11. For Oklahoma, 8. So, so Oklahoma, the highest offensive uh, efficiency ranking between those three teams. Defensive efficiency ranking, Oklahoma, 8. Notre Dame, 17 m 24. So of those three teams, Oklahoma has the best offensive and defensive efficiency ranking and Notre Dame beats AM in both of those categories as well. So you know I I know a lot of people feel like this thing is is narrative driven and sometimes we talk about the eye test and how big a factor that plays. And I do think that is something that is considered. but I think there are just so many metrics that every single year, tell us the story of, of you know, we know the committee values this and this and this and this. And when you understand that they value those things and you start comparing the teams and putting check marks next to one team over the other and one team getting that advantage, like every single year that tells the story and that ends up being the way that they do it. So so maybe the explanations aren't great when they ultimately give us these four and, and describe why sometimes they went one way or the other. But overall, I, I think that, we do see a pattern. We do see certain metrics that the committee values. And when you pay attention to those metrics and understand those metrics and start comparing teams head-to-head with those metrics, it it generally kind of gives us a pretty clear picture of the way the committee is going to go. And that was the case here. Again, I think the one um, curveball is is you don't necessarily know what cluster a team is going to be in. And whether a team like Oklahoma, for example, is in the same cluster as Notre Dame and Texas A and M, and they're going to get that opportunity to be compared head to head, that's you know that's kind of the one mystery part of this whole thing. But uh, you know the Kansas State loss certainly keeps Oklahoma out of the Final Four. I thought there was a very good chance that they could have potentially been ahead of A and M. And look, if if they win, maybe a little more impressively against Iowa State, uh, and and they don't give up the lead in the second half, and the offense doesn't completely shut down the way they did, maybe, um, maybe they get thrown into that argument and, and look, if they're in that argument, you can make a valid case even for Oklahoma over Notre Dame, despite having two losses, the total losses, isn't the end all be all again, we, we, we look at the top 10 this season and to see a team like Iowa state, for example, jump ahead of a team like Cincinnati, who's undefeated, you know, two losses compared to zero, the losses aren't the end-all, be-all. So this idea that just because Oklahoma had one more loss than other teams, they weren't going to be ranked ahead of them, again, is, is just not understanding how the committee does this and what they value. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a deal where over the last seven years, I think every year we kind of learn about this thing and become more educated. And, and we're kind of at a point now where, you know again, like I said at the top, there are certain people that are right every single year about what four teams it's going to be. Because they they understand and have listened to the metrics that are valued and they take into account all those different things and they understand the process as far as, you know, the clusters and comparing teams head to head and what is valued and also understanding that it's not just about one metric unless all things are equal and then maybe one metric becomes a tiebreaker type situation. So it's a bunch of moving parts and I get that it's, it's confusing at times. At the same time, I think if you've watched it very closely for seven straight years, then it's not as difficult as some make it out to be to kind of have an idea as to which way the committee is going to go. Uh, But I thought it was going to be exactly like it was, except for I thought thought Oklahoma would be viewed in the same cluster as Notre Dame and A&M. And I thought at the end of the day, when you considered... Adding the conference championship checkmark to Oklahoma's resume, the strength of schedule, the game control, the offensive and defensive efficiencies, the fact that they had won seven straight, the you know, and then you start adding the narrative parts about how Oklahoma was obviously without their best offensive and best defensive player for the first half of the season. They were undefeated with those guys back on the roster, uh, the freshman quarterback losing his first two FBS starts and obviously how much better he is at the end of the year. Um, I I think just considering all of those elements, I I thought that uh, the committee, again, understanding what they value would, would really value Oklahoma's overall resume more. But like I said, I think, I think when it's all said and done, you kind of look at the thing and, and see that. Oklahoma wasn't quite compared in the same cluster as as Notre Dame and A and M, so that's where that's where I think you get the five and six ranking. But Oklahoma was clearly the best of the rest when you take into account all of those those other elements. So uh, it worked out the way that that I thought it would, as far as the top four teams uh, and and making an argument for those teams. Um, the other interesting part of this is the BCS and the amount of people I think that just do not like. The college football playoff and the fact that there is, you know, the the human element and all of that, um, but you know, ultimately the BCS would give us the same final four this year as well. Um, they went the simulated BCS ranking at the end of the day was the exact same four in the exact order with Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Notre Dame being your top four. So, in either situation, CFP or BCS, we would have gotten the same four in the exact same order. And for the seventh straight year, actually, the BCS would have given us the same four as the CFP every year of its existence. So the BCS for the last seven years has had the exact same four as the CFP. And again, I've said this throughout the season, basically every Wednesday when we talk about the Tuesday night rankings. I think that people have a bigger issue with the way that things are explained as far as the committee's decisions than maybe the the overall result. Um, so yeah, take that for what it's worth. I'm just trying to explain this in a way that maybe helps you understand it a little bit more and, and helps you understand why it is the way that it is and, and how they go about it. Now, again, you don't have to like it and not everybody loves this system. I totally get that. There are a lot of college football fans that hate this system and they hate the way the committee does that. And I totally understand that. I'm not defending the way they do it I'm just I understand the way they do it, and when I make predictions, it's based on me trying to make an educated guess based on the things that I know the committee values and the, and based on the things that I I believe the committee operates. so uh, yeah, I, I just don't I don't think A m really had uh, a, a real chance despite what what may be said uh, over Notre Dame for that fourth spot. I think it was pretty obvious, although I will say. The late touchdown for Notre Dame on Saturday I do think I do think that played a role uh, because, you know, at, at some point you had to stop the bleeding, and if you never stopped the bleeding, it just it, it becomes even tougher to defend a team that gets blown out in the final week. The fact that they stopped the bleeding and at the end of the day, thirty-four to ten doesn't look nearly as bad as thirty-four to three, or even if it had gotten, you know, a little bit worse forty one to three. That I think is a lot more egregious for the committee to have to defend than Notre Dame getting that late touchdown. And at least on paper, uh, you know, that, that margin of victory not being quite as bad. But uh, I just, you know, it was gonna take a massive beatdown for of Clemson over Notre Dame to to even, I think, get it to be an equal uh head-to-head matchup with AM. And with the with the 24 point win, I just I don't I still don't think that was quite enough to to really put them in that situation. And when you start to add up all the metrics that they value, a And M basically wins in every category. So uh, it makes sense. It wasn't surprising. And you know I know everybody wants a different system, and I'm I'm totally understanding of that. And and I think there are there are ways to do this that that uh, give us a more exciting playoff. Uh, There are ways to do that that give us. Uh, more teams and, and maybe a better situation as far as as giving everybody a fair shot because for the people that, that are upset, that group of five teams don't have a chance right now. I, I mean, I understand that. It, it, they don't have a chance. So So every year, when we talk about a team like BYU a few weeks ago or coastal Carolina or Cincinnati, all these people that that like want to pretend that the committee is going to put them in one of these spots, you're just not paying attention. You may want that, but but what you want in reality are two completely different things. So the system's going to have to change for one of those teams to, to get the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, like it's, people want to say it's eye test and that's why like a two loss Big 12 team gets the nod over, you know, an undefeated American athletic team. But again, it's not just eye test, it's, it's the metrics as well. All of the metrics, all of the, the things the committee values tells you that Oklahoma on paper is a better team. So it's not just that Oklahoma has the OU on the side of their helmet, although that, that also plays a role. I'm I'm not going to pretend that being a blue blood doesn't help your case. It absolutely does. But the, the, you know, the, the statistics help your case as well. And there's again, not a single argument statistically on paper, other than the record for Cincinnati to be ahead of any of the teams that were in front of them, because on paper, all of those teams have check marks for all of the the things that we just talked about with strength of schedule and game control and blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, um, not, maybe not every single category for every single team, but if you compare those head to head, every team is, is going to get more check marks on paper than Cincinnati in that head to head matchup. So um, yeah, it's group of five. Just they don't have a chance in this system and we can argue to change the system for sure. And I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm totally on board with that, but in this system that is currently in place, it, it's just going to take, I, I think the stars aligning in a perfect scenario to get a group of five team in the conversation there. So uh, that's, that's just the, that's the playoff that we have right now. And again, you know, don't confuse my evaluation of what the committee does with what I want to see happen or how I believe things should happen. That, that's the biggest thing. I think like I, I throw out predictions sometimes or tell you that the committee is going to do it this way. And people think like that's the way I want it to be done or that's the way I believe it should be done. Uh, none, none of those things are true. I'm just, I'm telling you that I feel like I have a decent understanding of the way that the committee thinks and what they use and what they value and I'm trying to put myself in their shoes and think the way they would think, understanding the things that they value and telling you that I think this would be the way they go. So, um, again, I thought Notre Dame, to me, had a massive edge over AM in this thing, and, and I really didn't think A&M had any chance to get that spot. So, there you go. As far as the, the Big 12 championship game, how crazy is it that for the second game in a row... It's the Oklahoma defense saving the Sooners and ultimately propelling them to a sixth straight Big 12 championship. Uh, Two games in a row against Baylor and Iowa State, Oklahoma is outgained offensively, and they still find a way to win the game. And I I come away from that game just unbelievably impressed with how well the defense played. The defense was incredible. All the way to the point that I, I think they just got completely worn down in the second half. And, and look, any defense that's on the field that much uh, in that setting against a good football team, don't take anything away from Iowa State, but uh, against a good football team is, is going to wear down. Uh, they, they needed help from the offense. They needed the offense to sustain a few more drives, to get a few more first downs, and to give them a little bit longer rest on the sideline between uh, their opportunities. But, you know, again, when it was all on the line, uh, the defense made another huge play and bailed Oklahoma out, and they are now a six-time defending Big Twelve champion, which is just unbelievably uh, incredible. Considering they started conference play 0 to 2, the Kansas State loss, the Iowa State loss, uh, you know, at that point, looking at what was ahead of them, um, it, it it didn't seem extremely likely that Oklahoma was going to be in the position they're in right now which is the Big Twelve champion and the number six team in the college football playoff ranking. But I, I think that's a massive testament to the job that Alex Grinch did defensively for Oklahoma this season. You know, Lincoln Riley and the offense have been inconsistent all year long. It's still one of the top ten offenses in college football. Which is is crazy because we all see the clear gap between what they were with Baker, what they were with Kyler, even what they were with Jalen Hurts last year, which was you know, a lesser product, I think, than the other two guys, but, but certainly I think statistically better than, than this season. And just, again, for me, it's, it's inconsistencies offensively outside of what the overall production shows you, because this team is loaded with talent. Spencer Rattler, I I thought should have been the all big 12 quarterback. In fact, PFF actually released their all American team today. And for those that are unaware, PFF, is strictly based on how they grade you on film. It's not about narrative. It's not about where you play or any of that. It's it's based on a grade next to your name when, when they watch film. So PFF actually, so they do a first team, second team, third team, and then they do an honorable mention team. So basically a fourth team. They had, they had Spencer Rattler as the fourth best quarterback in college football this season, only behind uh, Mac Jones, Zach Wilson, and Kyle Trask. So Spencer Rattler, number four, I thought he was terrific on Saturday. The improvement that we've seen from him from the first game against Kansas State, second game against Iowa State, and by the way, I'm throwing out the Missouri State game, but and, and then even the the beginning of the Texas game and the progression basically we've seen from him when he re-entered the Texas game to this, this final point has been incredible. And he just continues to make big plays. There have been so many times where... Uh, you just kind of feel like he's he's been let down to a degree by the players around him, but uh, you know, look it's it's a it's an overall I think youth issue, especially for Oklahoma offensively. They are just they are loaded with talent. There are so many talented dudes for that team offensively that you know next year is really the year if they're able to get a spring, they're able to have you know a, a fall leading up to the season. Next year is the year that I think they really explode, but. So much inexperience and just you know especially down the stretch, a failure to consistently, I think gel and mesh together and uh, you know some of that I think in the second half was getting away from the run game. 24 to seven lead with 30 minutes left to play, you're up you're up by three possessions with the second half to play, and there was a stretch where I, I know Twitter was going crazy about the Lincoln Riley play calls. But there was a stretch where Lincoln Riley, I think, gave the ball to Ramondre Stevenson three times in 17 plays. And that was over the course of, I think, five the, the first five drives to start the second half. Three touches for Ramondre Stevenson for, um, I, don't know, I don't even know how many yards he got in those, maybe like nine or ten. Uh, it wasn't great. Uh, and, and I think you have to give the Iowa State defense a lot of credit for how well they played the second half. It wasn't just Oklahoma's offense uh, not performing. It it was some of that, but I think some of it was also the adjustments that Iowa State made, how well they played. And look, the line of scrimmage, right? Like Iowa State, despite the play calls and all that other stuff, over the course of the final 30 minutes, Iowa State, I think, was the better team on the line of scrimmage uh, in, in the Oklahoma offense versus Iowa State defensive matchup. So give Iowa State a lot of credit there as well. It wasn't just Oklahoma... Um, not doing certain things or bad play calls, that played a factor. But getting away from Ramondre Stevenson, who I believe at halftime is averaging six yards a carry, to getting three touches in 18 plays and not not moving the chains, not getting first downs, and and keeping that Oklahoma defense on the football field as much as they were, played a big role into that Oklahoma defense getting worn down, Iowa State getting able to, you know, get get things going offensively and make this the game that it became. Uh, late in the fourth quarter. I, I joked at the end of this game after the Trey Brown interception, when you consider all of the, I, I, I don't say this lightly, championship winning plays that he has made at AT&T Stadium for Oklahoma in these Big 12 title games, I joked that they're going to have to rename the stadium after Trey Brown. Like he's been, it, it's mind-blowing to me that he's been the guy three years in a row that's made a championship winning type of a football play for Oklahoma to do what they've done and to keep them in this spot where they continue to win big 12 championship after big 12 championship. But yeah, the offense was inconsistent, uh, which we talked about in the pregame show with Mike Steely on Saturday morning. That was something I expected. I, I didn't think they were just going to run up and down the field on Iowa state. Again, Iowa state's really talented too, which plays a role, but you know, like, with all the talent they have, they're going to hit big plays. There are going to be situations where Marvin Mims gets loose and you find him for a big touchdown. There are going to be situations where Ramondre Stevenson gets the ball in space and just trucks somebody or makes somebody miss. There are just too many good players for Oklahoma's offense to not have big plays and, you know, in in instances, move the football in chunks. But we just, you know, it's, I, I feel like down the stretch of the season, it's become a trend where they just struggle to put together positive offense consistently And, uh, you know, you can go back to the Oklahoma state game. I I think to see that the Oklahoma state game, they hit the ground on fire. I mean, out of the gate, the Lincoln, I think the the play calls for Lincoln Riley were terrific. I think they had Oklahoma state completely off balance and it's a 21 to zero lead. And then I think there were like six possessions in a row where they didn't score a touchdown. Uh, you know, same thing against Iowa state on Saturday, really strong start. And, you know, I think once Iowa state made some adjustments, um, I think Oklahoma struggled to, to readjust to a degree. And then when you start losing the battle on the line of scrimmage, that plays a bigger role. And, and, you know, the offense just kind of hit the break. Same thing against Baylor. You know, we, we saw some good, some good moments, some big plays in the game, but just a failure, failure to consistently put together positive offense for Oklahoma. So uh, again, I think the defense is my biggest takeaway. They were, they were incredible on Saturday and they're the reason Oklahoma won. Um, And, you know, to, to, Keep Brees Hall, who I think is is um, one of the best three running backs in college football, to, to keep him from running all over you. Uh, and, you know, for as great as Charlie Kolar is, and I think he's one of the best tight ends in college football. And he is a problem. I mean, I, we knew coming into that game he was going to be a problem and he was going to make some plays because Oklahoma just doesn't have a good matchup for him. But, you know, I think overall, uh, in the grand scheme of things, they, they, you know, considering the mismatch I think that's there – um, they didn't ultimately allow Char- Charlie Colar to to beat them. So, uh, great job by Alex Grinch, who is is going to get an opportunity at a head coaching gig. He has an interview, I think it was reported with Arizona uh, over the weekend. And look, this is it's a good problem to have. If nobody wants your coordinators, it means that your coordinators aren't doing a good job. Uh, you know, the blue bloods of college football deal with this every single year. I mean, look at all of the offensive and defensive coordinators that Ohio State has had over the last 10 years look at all of the offensive and defensive coordinators alabama has had over the last 10 years you know it's a testament to to clemson and and maybe it just speaks more to brent venable's personality that that clemson hasn't lost brent venables and and you know we always say this and i don't know if this applies to alex grinch or not i'm sure at some point he wants that opportunity to be a head coach and run his own program but the head coaching job isn't for everybody you know it's 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 a football job, but there are so many other elements involved in being a head coach beyond just burying your face into the football part of it. So maybe, you know, for some guys, they're just not built to do all the other stuff outside of the football stuff to be a head coach. And and look, maybe Alex Grinch is ready to take that, that step and make that move, and, and maybe he's really good at it. Or maybe Alex Grinch, being as good as, as he is in two seasons at Oklahoma, decides that maybe I'm not ready yet and if I wait another year or two considering the trajectory of the Oklahoma defense maybe he gets a considerably better job in a year or two i mean maybe maybe he's at the Brent Venables level in 2 years where you know every offseason, the biggest job that's available we say, you know, Brent Venables could probably have that job if he wanted it. Maybe Alex Grinch gets to that point in a couple years. I think he's already pretty close considering the job he's done in two seasons. He's been remarkable in two years. And I gave, you know, I gave a bunch of the statistics a couple weeks ago in terms of the rank of Oklahoma's defense in key categories two years ago and where they are now. And in some of those categories, they've jumped 100 spots. Uh, and now they're one of the best defenses in all of college football and, and certainly uh, one of the best in the Big 12. So Alex Grinch is going to be coveted, but. If you're upset about that, you know, I, I, that's, that's just the reality of having good coordinators in college football. If your guys are not getting phone calls and nobody else wants your coordinators, then you don't have good coordinators, and therefore you don't have a good offense, you don't have a good defense, right? Nobody was calling Mike Stoops over the last five years, and there's a reason why. Oklahoma wasn't any good defensively. So when you start having success, that's the reality of college football, and especially at Blue Blood programs, that's the reality you want your defensive and offensive coordinators getting head coaching calls because it means they're doing a great job, and it probably means you are winning conference championships and you're either in or on the doorstep of a college football playoff situation. So uh, congratulations to Alex Grinch, regardless of the way it turns out. Uh, great opportunity, and, and he's being recognized for the job that he's done. So uh, real quick, when you look at, at the bowl matchups, I, I think Oklahoma's situation against Florida is really interesting and, you know, I know there's, there's already a lot of talk about the bowl games and how many of them are even going to be played. And, you know, I, I think especially with this Christmas break coming up this week and a quick turnaround, uh, the idea that, you know, you, you, you get positive tests and there's just not enough time to, to really overcome that could shut a lot of these bowl games down. If this thing happens, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this matchup uh, for Oklahoma. I think from a college football narrative standpoint, this matchup uh, would be a lot of fun. Oklahoma dodges a massive bullet in this matchup if it happens because Kyle Pitts isn't playing. Kyle Pitts is a problem. And he is, I think, as good as any tight end I've seen in college football ever. Like, I, I he's that good at that position. Uh, you know, I, you put him in like the, the Kellen Winslow um, category, for example. Kellen Winslow was just a, 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 an unstoppable force at Miami at the tight end position. Um, you know, it, we saw the mismatch that Iowa state had with Charlie Kolar just on Saturday from the tight end position. Kyle Pitts is on a whole, whole different level in my opinion. And then that's no disrespect to, to Charlie Kolar, who I think is one of the premier tight ends in the country. Maybe, maybe top three Mackey award finalist type guy, but Kyle Pitts, I think from an athletic standpoint is just on a different level. Excuse me. And, uh, I, I, he, w- he would have been a problem for Oklahoma if he played. And, and that, you know, I, I don't know if that, that would have swayed my opinion on who wins the game or not, but it's a massive piece as far as what Florida does and having a, mis- a massive mismatch over Oklahoma. So not having Kyle Pitts obviously would be huge, but I, I, it would just be fun to see. Florida was really good offensively. Kyle Trask was really good all season long. It would be fun to see... Oklahoma play against that offense and and look I I would say that I, I do think Florida would be the best offense they've played this season I don't think anybody in the Big 12 offensively is as good as Florida so I think that would be the first test as far as the Oklahoma defense that would be kind of fun to see how that played out and then secondly on the other side of it you know Oklahoma has struggled offensively at times especially down the stretch in terms of being consistent Not that they can't still score, not that they can't still hit you with big plays because they have talented players, but just to be consistent offensively, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, I think you have to give the Big 12 a lot of credit for how improved they are defensively. I think when we look at the SEC and especially Florida, they've gotten beat defensively like every week. That's a a group that I absolutely believe Oklahoma would have success against. Uh, So to just kind of like gauge, the Florida defensive performance against a team outside the conference and and a team like Oklahoma, who obviously we understand has some consistency issues offensively. I think Oklahoma would would put up a big number against that group, but, but just to see that, that comparison and how it played out and how that might change the narrative nationally would be interesting. So I hope the game happens. I hope I know Kyle Pitts isn't going to play. He's already opted out. I hope if it happens, we don't have a whole bunch of other opt outs uh, but you know, I think if if you get both of these teams as close to full strength as possible, it would be fun, and and I really like it. Same thing for uh, Oklahoma State Miami. I think that's a really fun matchup. De'Ara King was was terrific, and that Miami offense is certainly dangerous and explosive. And you know, I've I've loved the Oklahoma State defense all season. Certainly down the stretch, uh, they, they struggled. And, and, you know, again, some of that is, is offensive related, like we just talked about with Oklahoma in the Iowa State game. You have to have a little help or down the stretch of games, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start to turn on you. But, uh, you know, if, if they're at full strength defensively, I would love to see the Oklahoma State defense against the Miami offense. I think that would be a great matchup and a lot of fun to watch play out. Uh, also, I, I've said this a couple times this week, but uh, Cheez-Its, Cheez-It Bowl, Oklahoma State, Miami. Cheez-Its, incredibly underrated snack. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm a Cheez-It fan. I like Cheez-Its. Uh, I could, you know, I could eat a whole box of them or a bag of them. I, I told Mike Steely this earlier this morning. I When I get Cheez-Its, the box opens. The bag comes out of the box. I don't carry the box around. The bag comes out. The top of the bag gets cut off, so you have a, a, a large grabbing area because you got to go into the bag and grab a fistful. I mean, that's the, that's the correct way to do cheese. It so, uh, just a, a public service announcement there, but yeah, look, Oklahoma state. Um, is, I think that's a fun matchup with Miami again, assuming that, uh, that we get close to a, a full roster and we don't have just massive opt-outs and we'll see how all that plays out. I haven't seen, uh, to this point, at least anything as far as that front goes, but, uh, and, and also, uh, Tulsa, I think, is really interesting against Mississippi State. I, I like Tulsa to win that game also. So, um, yeah, it was a uh, good weekend. Good weekend. And I'm excited about the bowl season. Obviously, uh, the college football playoff, I think, is a two-team race. And, you know, the other part about this that's really interesting, just to go back to the playoff for a minute. We said when we had the two-team race that, you know, every year it, it felt like we were making a case for a third team. And and there were some years that, that you know, maybe it was just crystal clear cut. There were two teams. Um, but every once in a while you would, there would be this case for a third team, which I think prompted what we have now and the four team. But when we got the four team, uh, there were a lot of people, including myself that said, you know, it's, it's going to become a massive argument for who gets the fourth spot every year. Like it's, no matter how many you have, there's going to be an argument for who should be in and who that final spot is going to get, right? Like we get this in college basketball and there are 68 teams in and we still have, we still have these people on ESPN that are like the biggest snubs in the college basketball tournament of 68 teams where this team and this team and this team, they got left out like 68 teams made it. If if you are not good enough to to clear cut be in that group, then like, I don't know what to tell you, but. With the college football playoff this year, you know, there's this massive argument whether Texas A&M should be in or not. And, you know, in the old system, this is one of those years where in the the old BCS, two teams, nobody is even arguing or even bringing it up, I think, for that matter, that, that it should be Clemson and Alabama in the championship. I don't think anybody even thinks right now going into these semifinal games that there are teams that could compete with Alabama and Clemson. So... You know, it's it's funny that, that I think even most years in the BCS, the top two teams were pretty clear cut. Every once in a while, you would have a third team, and now we're at four, and we're arguing for the fourth team, but nobody, nobody thinks that any one of the options at four is a team that's even going to compete on a close level with Alabama, right? Like, we just watched Notre Dame get dominated by a full-strength Clemson team. Texas a and played Alabama already and got dominated. For as good as Oklahoma is and, and has become down the stretch of the season, I, I think Oklahoma would have problems with Alabama. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I, I just love that we argue for this number 4 spot, uh, and, and especially in a year where I think the top two are as crystal clear as, as it could be. Uh, I, I don't even think you can make a legitimate argument for anybody in a two-team race other than Alabama or Clemson. By the way, I did uh, did bring this up yesterday. I thought it was interesting going back to the semifinals and just how lopsided they are every single year. Here are, so we've had six college football playoffs to this point. We're going into college football playoff number seven. We've had six to this point, and here are the margins of victory in all of these playoffs. So the first year, our two winners were Oregon and Ohio State. Oregon won their game by 39 points. Ohio State had one of the rare single-digit wins in college football semifinal play with a seven-point win. So the margins year one, 39 and seven. The margins year two were 20 and 38. Clemson wins by 20. Bama wins by 38. Year three, Bama by 17. Clemson by 31. Year four, the Georgia-Oklahoma game, again, another rare single-digit situation. Georgia won by six but Alabama wins by 18. Um, Two years ago, we had Bama plus 11 and Clemson plus 27. Again, just massive margins of victory in a lot of these games. And then a year ago, LSU by 35 and Clemson beat Ohio State by six. So we've had three single-digit semifinal games of the 12 games that have been played in in the last six years of the college football playoff semifinals. So it just kind of goes back to the point of I don't think very often we have a situation where there are four teams that are on an equal like tier as far as the best in college football. Like usually it's it's two or maybe in in some years there are three that that we can safely say are on the top tier of college football. But most seasons there aren't four teams that are all on the highest tier of of the sport and that's why I think in these semifinal games nine of the 12 that have been played have been double-digit victories. It, and, and, you know, I think we've watched a lot of these and, and they're just completely uh, lopsided and one-sided. And, uh, you know, this is another year where I really do think that uh, it's it's Alabama and Clemson meeting once again. They're the best two teams. I think they prove it in the semifinal games. Uh, Alabama's a massive favorite against Notre Dame. I think they win. Uh, you know, the other one is interesting because I I do think that that Ohio State is going to get maybe unfairly judged going into this game against Clemson just strictly based on what they did against Northwestern. What, what was the number? I think they had 23 players out in that game. Um, somebody told me three starters, which, look, three starters isn't um, a crazy amount, but I think you're also undervaluing the significance of three starters for a football team. Uh, and And look, the overall depth of a football team, right like that that also plays a big factor uh, as as we all know, watching Oklahoma and Oklahoma State over the last few years in certain position groups. uh depth is a massive issue, so it's not just that you are are missing starters it's it's the amount of depth that you may have available and uh you know i I, I do think Clemson's better. I do think Clemson wins, but i I do think we are all undervaluing. Ohio state in that matchup a little bit, just simply based on the Northwestern game and how bad they looked against Northwestern there. I, I, you know, you get, you get fully healthy. You get ready for this Clemson matchup. I do think that they are a little bit better than they're getting credit for. But again, I still think Clemson's the better team. I still think Clemson wins. All right. What else do we have? I think we've uh, pretty much covered it. Um, Oh, real quick. The PFF all American team was announced today. Uh, And, and, I, I like PFF a lot. I don't think it's the gospel. I, I don't think that it's just clear cut. If PFF grades you as the best player in the country, you are the best player in the country. But I just think, you know, the more data and knowledge we have in any situation, the better and, and more knowledgeable we are about a situation. And I think that these rankings do carry some weight. Again, is it the gospel? No, but it can, it, it can it can kind of just show you, I think, how good some guys are, maybe maybe take away some of that bias, right? Because, you know, even, even, and I'm guilty of this at times, uh, we look at the top teams in college football, the Alabamas, the Clemsons, the Ohio States, even the Oklahomas for that matter, and the logo on the helmet and the recruiting star that you had coming into college football sometimes gives you, you know, a little bit uh, of of elevated treatment compared to maybe, you know, a defensive lineman from... Maryland or West Virginia or Kansas State uh, so that's that's I I just you know it's another tool to kind of gauge how how good players are and how well they've played within a season so their first team quarterback is Mac Jones Alabama and this again this is just completely based on how they grade them throughout the season so it's it's not like an Alabama thing it's just Mac Jones was really good and he graded out really well Mac Jones was first team quarterback Zach Wilson was second team quarterback Kyle Trask was third team quarterback. And then they do a, they do a fourth team. They call it honorable mention, but it's still a, a you know, it's basically the fourth team. They have Spencer Rattler as the their fourth team quarterback, uh, as far as their all American team. Uh, just, just for an example, I think Brees Hall is one of the best three running backs in college football. Brees Hall didn't make any of the teams for PFF. He just didn't grade that high for them. Um, you know, a, another example of this, I think Nashi Harris is the best running back in college football. He's the things that he does every single week are just unbelievable. He's a second teamer for for PFF. So that, that just kind of is another example of, it, it's just completely based on how you grade out in their process. Uh, but just the Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and Tulsa guys in this thing real fast. Tylen Wallace was a third team receiver. Marvin Mims was also a third team receiver, uh, which, you know, again, I think is just remarkable for... A guy that I think is is going to become a devastating force in football when he becomes kind of that go-to guy consistently, rather than just the big play threat. Man, he's going to be scary. Uh, but. We've got, uh, we've got okay, so here it is real quick. I, I, I grouped them all together. Sooners that made the PFF All-American team. Nick Benito was a first-team defensive end. Isaiah Thomas was a second-team defensive end. Marvin Mims was a third-team receiver. Spencer Rattler, honorable mention, fourth-team quarterback. Ronnie Perkins, honorable mention, fourth-team defensive end. For Oklahoma State, Tevin Jenkins was a second-team offensive lineman. Tyler Wallace, third-team wide receiver. And then for the Tulsa Golden Hurricane, it was Zavin Collins- as a uh, first-team linebacker. So there you go. Um, again, I, I know a lot of people feel like there are bias in these All-American teams, just like for the college football playoff, but with the PFF, at least, it's it's not about who you prefer or anything like that. It's, it's simply based on their grading formula and who grades out the best that way. So take it for what it's worth. Again, I don't think it's the gospel. I think it's just another good metric to consider when you're evaluating all the different metrics, uh, to make a, you know, a, a decision about who you think is the best or, or any of that stuff. So, uh, I, I appreciate it though. I am a fan of, of what they do and, uh, the tools that they kind of give us every single week in, in evaluating these guys. So, all right, I think we covered it all. College football playoff, uh, big 12 championship, um, uh, the, the matchup with Florida, which obviously we're going to talk a lot more about. And, uh, we'll talk a lot more about all this stuff. I, in fact, throughout the week, but There was so much on my mind coming into today following championship Saturday and the committee's decisions on Sunday and just everything as far as the bowls and the matchups and all that. I I probably missed some things that I wanted to discuss, but, uh, there was so much that I think I got it all out anyway. All right. That is it for this episode of the Colby Daniels podcast presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest city. Check out their line of natural medicine products. You can visit the website, abotanicalcompany.com or give them a call 405-458-9699 educate yourself on what they have available and how it can benefit your daily life. That's what they're all about is helping people live a better life. I'm a customer and they've done that for me as well. Uh, when you enter the code at checkout online, artists and botanicals.com, the code is Colby show, C O L B Y S H O W Colby show. You get 15% off your online order. So again, check out the website, a botanical place your order, enter the show Colby, enter the code Colby show and get 15% off your online order. We're saving you money this holiday season at Artisan Botanicals. All right, everybody, have a great day, stay safe, and I will talk to you tomorrow.